All right, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Break the Rules. I'm your host, Lev Polyakov, at LevPo on Twitter. And today we have two wonderful guests coming back. Jeremy Kaufman, who is currently running for uh, Senate in uh, New Hampshire. You have one of the best commercials that I've seen so far where you dress up as a lizard man, and we are definitely going to get into it. And counterpoints, Connor, <laughs> great of you to join us as well. Uh, I am a big admirer of your views. I think your views are the closest ones that uh, are to mine. But I think that both of you guys, despite the differences that may be in this topic today of uh, American, some would say imperialism, some would say keeping a certain amount of peace throughout the world, despite those two differences, I think that you have a lot in common. You're both uh, libertarian-minded. Uh, counterpoints, I would love to hear from you like what your background is as far as uh, I know that you were in the military, you were a police officer. Well, that may be, that may be a contentious subject with Jeremy, we'll, we'll see. Uh, but uh, you are in favor of guns, you are in favor of a lot of the same policies that I think Jeremy is. But just uh, go ahead and tell the good people a little bit about you as well as what policies you favor before we move right on to the U.S. Uh, war machine and all that good stuff. Yeah, so uh, I think that power abhors a vacuum. Uh, this is something that I learned through the my experience in the military and my experience in law enforcement. Uh, you know, people, when left to their own devices, are not like benevolent, you know, magnificent, entrepreneurial, peaceful people. Uh, oftentimes, they're selfish, impulsive bastards uh, who need somebody to check their, those impulses. So while I believe in liberty, I believe in ordered liberty. I believe in the fact that uh, basically there, there has to be some level of accounting from a moral perspective. And I realized through my travels that a lot of peace, uh, you know, we can we can talk about America's war. We can talk about our sins. We can talk about our crimes. We can talk about our war crimes and our sins against humanity. We can talk about all of that. But there are hundreds or thousands, uh, hundreds of thousands, if not millions of lives that are dependent on the American empire. And as such, I don't think that we should withdraw. If anything, I think we learned a massive lesson from World War II and the entanglements of World War I and also the Barbary Pirate Wars and also the Indian Wars and all that kind of stuff, that uh, basically it, it's not sufficient to simply trade with willing partners and then maintain a border. That doesn't seem to bode well for global economic trade. It's my position that the United States is at the head of a $65 trillion global hegemony. And if you want stable oil prices, if you want stable consumer products, if you want uh, stable commerce, and if you want hundreds of thousands of millions of people to not die in war, then it's an important position for the United States and its allies to maintain. We do well, overreach. Hmm. Uh, yeah, I can wrap it up. We do overreach and we can talk about what the balance of power is because obviously we've overreached in the past two decades. Uh, but I think dialing it in, I'm not an isolationist and I'll leave it there. Well, there we go. Right from the gate. You did not want to uh, mince words, dance or prance around it, going right in there. I love that. Jeremy, I would love to hear, before you reply to counterpoints, just a little bit about yourself. I also noticed that the camera is a little bit blurry. Hope that you were able to uh, hear all of that. I don't know what your connection is like right now. But uh, yeah, let me know if you heard everything. And I would love to hear, before your reply, just a little bit about your official stance. And also... Uh, 
guys check out his commercials i'm serious he dresses up as a lizard man he is the very first trans species candidate that i think we've had so far so uh jeremy good on you for that but yeah uh, l let me know what you think and everybody subscribe all the people who are here subscribe right now anyway go for it jeremy yeah. <laughs> quality's fine on my backup camera it's blurry you know and uh, i'm not uh, advertisements lizard person are going to give, uh the support no, your audio is really bad right now i don't know what happened everything was good before and now your audio really sucks so maybe we can turn off the camera see if that helps or get a cell phone connection either way we're going to handle this uh so jeremy see what you can do about that connection while that's going on though counterpoints would there be anything that you would want to add as far as your views go so go ahead yeah um, oh man, you you want to give me the opportunity to rant some more? Okay, all right. Yes, I'm more. giving you the opportunity to rant some more <laughs> while Jeremy figures out what's going on with his uh, New Hampshire internet. Okay, yeah. So um, ba basically, there's a whole different bunch of places that we could go. And if I was to outline like a historical case for this, the the United States started out as 13 colonies. Like we we started out very small, but then we had a revolutionary war in order to expand our territory, in order to go into the Indian territories because that we thought that it was necessary for like our military, economic, and commercial goals. And then after that, once we had like gone as far west, well, then we bumped into the Spanish, and the Spanish had economic goals that were contrary to our own. First, we tried diplomacy. After we tried diplomacy, we did war, uh, and then we annexed what is now the you know continental 50 united states and then turn them into states rather than territories and then uh you know we could have been libertarian at that point but then uh, while we were sending merchant ships into the mediterranean to trade with willing partners like the 19th century was probably the most libertarian that we ever were what ended up happening was barbary pirates uh sponsored by the ottoman empire started raiding american ships so we said okay well we have to protect our commercial interests overseas we can't just let billions of dollars of material get seized by foreign nationals so we have to you know entrench ourselves in the ottoman empire so then we started fighting wars and getting involved in the ottoman empire long before petroleum was even that big of a deal and then after that uh you know we basically tried to be isolationist up until the early 20th century but then world war one and world war ii dragged us in so for me there there's this fantasy it's uh it's thomas jefferson versus like alexander hamilton uh, you know, in Thomas Jefferson's vision of the 19th century of a bunch of like yeomanry farmers, self-sufficient farmers across the United States who are free, that dream died about 150 years ago. And libertarians are dancing in the corpse. And that's kind of, uh, yeah, that's where I'm at. All right. Well, Jeremy, I look forward to hearing from you. Also, one other piece of advice, if in case whatever you say right now is still going to have a little of glitchiness to it, I would recommend that you go back in here with your cell phone and try that if you are on Wi-Fi. But either way, Jeremy, go for it. You know, it's not clear to me exactly uh, we'd be disagreeing about. You know, I could go back. If we're talking about no, it's still bad. I can't do it. I'm sorry, Jeremy. The the connection the connection is still bad. But tell me, are you on Wi-Fi right now? Yeah, I do calls all the time. Um, 
Oh. All right, try your mobile signal because right now, I don't know, there's some forces that are trying to stop the libertarian cause from being heard right now. These are members <laughs> of the deep state. They want to shut you down. They did not like you portraying uh, them as a, a lizard person. That was too close. That was too close for the heart, for their heart, for their icy cold lizard man heart. So try a mobile signal. Do you have a mobile signal where you are? Jeremy. Can you hear oh. me? Well, I can I can address yes. chat while we're waiting for Jeremy yes. to call in. Uh, basically, this guy is CIA. Uh, I fucking wish, man. I wish I was on a government payroll, okay? I wish I was getting fucking 50K a year in order to spout propaganda on the internet. I would be so comfortable if all my bills are paid. But unfortunately, they're not. I'm just out here spouting imperialist bullshit on my own dime. So, you know, CIA, if you're listening, uh, I'm, I'm relatively cheap. Well, what would you say would be the main libertarian argument if you could if you could be possessed by the ghost of Jeremy Kaufman here for a second? And I know that this would be turning into a one man show. What I am yeah. going to do. Oh, here. I think he's going to come back. But what I really want to see is whether you can make a very solid yeah, libertarian can, argument. Yes. For yeah, uh, why if, I, they... if I can if I can steal a man the libertarian argument, it's we've spent trillions of dollars overseas. Tens of thousands of young American men have died fighting for wars that we had nothing to do with in the first place. Oftentimes, military adventurism is uh, based off of a lie. So whether or not you're talking about like the Gulf of Tonkin incident or Saddam Hussein had weapons of mass destruction, all of that kind of stuff. It, it, it seems like our global globalist internationalist leaders they they want to serve the global economic empire however they can so if you as an individual soldier or security apparatus or intel officer if you die in the line of duty they don't give a shit as long as they're making their global buccarinos uh so uh yeah i mean i agree with that but then i also think that is like the global economic empire is important and we'd be fools not to admit that it's important I understand uh, their arguments, though, as far as needless spending goes. That's the one thing where I think that they do have a solid point in, where if you have all these various political connections, you can expect that there's going to be a lot of money wasted as opposed to in the free market. And as far as like the deal with Ukraine, as you know, like I'm a big proponent of supporting Ukraine, but I still don't really understand uh, if the amount of money that they've sent in can be justified. How much spending is there for no good reason at all just to line the pockets of certain people that would benefit from that and not actually going to the cause it's supposed to go into? And how do we how do we deal with that? Well, I don't I don't know the uh, I don't know the answers to that question of specifically like how much grift or corruption or people lining each other's pockets there is. You know, I'm sure it's millions, maybe billions. Uh, and then, you know, to the you know, I'm not saying individuals are benefiting to the trillions, but obviously billions. And what I would make a counter argument is that we're we're making a mistake by thinking that we are looking at America's global or we're looking at our GDP and then we're looking at how much we're doing on security spending, both discretionary and fixed. And then that is the comparison that we need to do. Amer the American military is frankly like one of the few competent militaries on the planet right now. I think Russia has shown us that within the past like 90 to 120 days. So basically with us being the only competent military on the planet, what you're really safeguarding is $65 trillion worth of economic activity when it comes to America and its allies. Like I would consider Iran, 
China, Venezuela, and Russia, and maybe a handful of other countries as outside of the American global economic hegemony. And pretty much the rest of the world is within some level of the global American economic hegemony. So when you're talking about like $65 trillion of economic input, what is, you know, 70, 750 billion or with discretionary spending, like $1.5 billion per year? Uh, it's, it's piss in the ocean. And so I don't, I don't think it's that much, to be honest, on the global scale. Well, on the global scale, then, if you forget that particular aid to Ukraine and just focus on the full amount of military spending, how much is that, give or take, per year? Yeah, I mean, I would say, depending, it's like $750 billion for fixed. And then oftentimes during war, it's like $1.5 or $2 trillion dollars. Uh, coming out of the Amer specifically the American defense budget, like probably peak Iraq, peak Afghanistan, it was like two trillion a year. So was there any way that we could say that there is so much waste that's going on here? Is there any way that could be proven? Yeah, no. I mean, it, it, it depends on what you think is waste, right? So so for instance, like we know that they spent like a few hundred million on the J-35 uh, strike fighters helmet. We know that they can, you know, a few like billions. I, I think that the entire program, the entire J-35 program might be $1.2 trillion over the course of 10 years. So you're talking about like $200 billion a year or something like that. So it's a, it's a fuckload of money. It's way more money than you or I can conceptualize, that's for sure. But then the, the question also becomes uh, a question of like the technological innovation that comes out of that. So for instance, we are often responsible for the world's R&D when it comes to defense. We're responsible for the R&D when it comes to a lot of medical shit. So uh, basically the, the question is like, what do you think that being militarily a generation ahead of China is worth a few billion or a few trillion dollars? Uh, my answer, considering China's general demeanor and their general politics is, yeah, that's absolutely worth it to stay a, a step ahead of China and basically make a actual war with china impossible because while they might have the numbers they don't have the the training or the technology and their technology is basically cheap shitty copies of ours before going forward by the way an update we're going to have voluntarist keith who I know is a big favorite of a lot of the libertarian people from the Libertarian Institute coming in in about five to ten minutes. So don't worry, even if Jeremy is going to be eaten by the giant sandworm of technical glitches, we are still going to be able to have a very interesting and exciting stream because I know that Jeremy, I mean, sorry, I know that uh, Keith, he can, Keith Knight, he can definitely debate the hell out of people. So I'm going to be very excited for that. Once again, everybody subscribe who is here from Keith as well. But anyway... In order to still be devil's advocate for these positions over here, well, we have a comment about Israel right on schedule. So Professor G <laughs> says over here that maybe we should stop sending billions to Israel, stop supporting. Uh, okay, here. So once again, I wish that there was somebody who was on this panel who would actually be in favor of what Professor G is saying. Personally, I think the whole thing is ridiculous. But uh, again, like this is something that I can, a lot of people bring I can up. Be the, I can be yeah. the villain for that. All right, be yeah, the villain. So yeah. So, all right. Number one, like, I do think I'll just admit that Israel gets preferential treatment. Okay. Like, like they get, I, I think they're like the second or first most aided country outside of the United States borders, but this is like a pretty decently earned position. If you actually, and by the way, I'm not Jewish. So before you start accusing me of being a Jew, I'm not Jewish. Uh, but the, the, the point being that if you actually look at the history of the Israeli state, 
it wasn't always like a guaranteed thing to happen. Like in 1948, they were in a precarious position. They basically did have to steal technology and steal money and all of that kind of stuff in order to make the country work. They did have to fight defensive wars against uh, basically people attacking them while they were coming in. And you could say, oh, well, they were wars of aggression because they were settling anyways, blah, 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 blah. Who gives a fuck? The point is, at this point, Israel is a high-end technological manufacturer. They are a high-end R&D place. They are a high-end military power. They are high-end in so many ways. And if I remember correctly, a majority of the defense aid that we give Israel is literally basically, we give you the cash, you're doing R&D, and then you're buying our end product that's developed from the R&D. So it's a, it's a, it's a sweet deal. But the sweet deal is still like we're handing you cash and then it comes right back to us in the way of defensive shipments. So should we have to subsidize Israel like that? Maybe, maybe not. Maybe we should take a look at their current books and see if they can afford to just buy shit outright. But you also have to understand that keeping Israel favorable to us is preferable because they are dealing with like China and other countries on the back end as well. So keeping them in our pocket when it comes to the most advanced technologies is smart because they will be, you know, Leave it to the Jews, okay? They're they're intelligent. They know how to develop shit. They're smart as fuck. So having a few Jewish scientists around in order to help you advance the world isn't a bad thing. So One other thing I would add to that is I think that a lot of the people in Israel are very practical when it comes to how they deal with other countries. So, for example, there was a war of all these Middle Eastern nations going against Israel. Today, not so much. You have Iran still, you know, you have uh, various holdouts, but as far as relationships go with Egypt, with uh, the Emirates, uh, Saudi Arabia, these are very nice, solidified, peaceful relationships now. That seems to be the trajectory things are going, and they don't seem to be doing anything offensive towards those nations. Same with uh, Fatah, you know, the other Palestine that people keep forgetting about. So at least when I take a look at how the relationship is towards those places that aren't waging any war in Israel, that at least tells me that there isn't this malevolent idea that people uh, have in their heads. So I don't know. That's the other thing that I would say about that. I know that there's going to be plenty of people in chat who are going to disagree on it because I could definitely count on having plenty of libertarian-minded people and plenty of the Antifa types, uh, leftists, who do agree on that particular issue a lot of times and i can understand why because it does seem like to somebody who just looks at it from afar that there is so much waste that's going on and america's perpetuating all these wars in yemen and all these horrible things that you know nobody would really wish uh, would happen my only question is like let's say with the yemen conflict what would happen if the U.S. would uh, stop doing it? And I'm not saying that it should do what it's doing. By no means. I don't know. I'm basically just saying, like, what is the reason why, for example, the United States is supporting the Saudi government in the bombing of uh, Yemen at this moment? Well, let's let's take some let's take some logic and let's uh, let's invert it real quick, because a lot of the people who will criticize the uh, America's involvement and support. Wait, hold on. Lots of misconceptions about the wars against Israel. Really wish I could speak with y'all on the Palestinian topic, help dispel the traditional Zionist narrative. Well, Professor G, okay, so I understand that you're saying, like, maybe you can't come on this show, but just DM me on uh, on uh, Twitter if you are not banned from there. 
So underscore Twitter or wait, underscore counterpoints, underscore literally just DM me. I'll talk to you sometime about it. You and I can hash it out because I don't feel like I have a romantic vision of Israel. I feel like I have a pretty grounded vision of Israel. So if you ever want to talk about it, we can talk about it. Um, but kind of kind of to address the uh, Houthi Yemen uh, re rebellion taking control. So. A lot of the people who are supporting Russia right now in their or either they're either supporting Russia or they're agnostic where they're like, well, I don't like what Russia's doing, but I understand their geopolitical interest. I think that we backed them into a corner. And as a result, this is just what's going to happen. So we shouldn't get ourselves involved because it's geopolitically logical. So if I am, to, I've conceded in the past that it's geopolitically logical. I just think that it's a humanitarian fucking disaster. And that, uh, you know, the way that it's affecting oil prices, the way that it's affecting food prices, the way that it's affecting so many other things. I wish that the Russians were able to achieve their short term uh, geopolitical goals, particularly the control of Crimea with uh, with like diplomacy rather than warfare, because I think they would have been able to do that. And then I'll wrap this idea up since we have a new friend. Um, but basically, like, take that logic of geopolitical um geopolitical logic and then apply that to the conflict in yemen where yemen is a part of the arabian peninsula the houthis are iranian aligned saudi arabia will not allow a uh, a iranian aligned government on its own peninsula and the uh so you can either have a mixed like democratic like you know representative coalition but you can't just have a houthi only uh, represented government and have Saudi Arabia uh, tolerate that. So I'll leave it there. Excellent. And we got our knight in shining armor coming to the rescue, Keith Knight. Horrible pun. I had to do it, though. Keith, uh, thank you so much for coming in. It's a great pleasure to see you again. So, yeah, let's pick up where we left off as far as uh, counterpoints. I don't know if you heard his uh, position uh, on America's... Uh, place in the world its responsibilities i'm curious about where you see america's responsibilities to what extent should america intervene in the various conflicts that are going on in the world to what extent should the united states ensure there is a semblance of stability and not allow bigger actors like china and russia to rise up well it's not necessarily a matter of should we ensure safety? Should safety exist? I definitely think that those things should exist. The question is, who should bear the cost, one, and who has the proper incentive to actually create that safety? We can see the American empire with uh, something like $800 billion a year they spend in alleged defense, and we are more insecure than it seems uh, what we otherwise would have been uh, before uh, Russian uh, before Russia was the boogeyman, it was North Korea was going into Guam. Before that, it was Iran. Before that, it was Hezbollah or the Taliban or Al-Qaeda or the Russians uh, b before that. So it doesn't seem like we're getting a lot of bang for our buck, which makes sense because we have a lot of concentrated benefits and very dispersed costs. The cost of me protesting and demanding they start uh, doing things correctly, whether it's not killing civilians or Antony Blinken having a meeting with Sergei Lavrov and engage in diplomacy. It's it uh, is a very high cost to each individual, but the concentrated benefits are, uh, 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 are such a trophy for 
the politicians, for General Dynamics, Raytheon, Northrop Grumman, that it doesn't necessarily make sense economically for them to back off or deliver an efficient product or service. Because the worse they do, the more money they get after 9-11. Bush's approval rating went to 90% after Pearl Harbor. FDR was reelected and the government had more power than it previously did. So because of the perverse incentive that uh, statism has, we should not look to that and look much more towards a voluntary system where at any point we have the ability to stop funding or disassociate with groups who are not actually defending us, who aren't, if you want to use the trade route example, who aren't making uh, commercial transactions friendly and who are uh, discriminating by uh, choosing to enforce the legislation of the state as opposed to voluntary agreements between uh, commercial enterprises. So uh, I hope that uh, answers your uh, question specifically. Yeah. So, so I have a question compared to what? Okay. So, so, so this is, this is one of my things about the voluntarist mindset or whatever. So let, let's say that we went back to voluntarism. Let's say that every taxpayer could check off where their money went. As a result, the department of defense literally had 30% of its budget cut. It had to pull back from the world stage. It had to make choices about where it was. And on top of that, people could continue to make uh, choices about their money uh, where it goes from a taxpayer's perspective. So when you're when you're fighting a war or you're defending a, a global interest or whatever, how does this not solely align with raw commercial interest? And how are there any like moral or virtue choices that are made when basically the almighty dollar sub you know basically underlies every single decision that everybody's ever going to make? And how do you make sense of the chaos? That's going to occur when basically a commercial group says, yeah, we have a military interest in Vietnam, so we're going to go ahead and support the DOD and specifically going into this campaign in Vietnam to support American corporate interests. Uh, but then, you know, maybe return on investment is low. So then they withdraw. And then, uh, you know, they basically do the same thing a decade later or a decade later or a decade later. And you have these these disparate married commercial and security interests that don't have a cohesive game plan. You have that when there's a state and the corporations don't have to directly pay for any services that they're getting. It's much more likely to happen when they can send the check to the taxpayer. So we have two situations, both where the corporation wants to get money. Would you rather there be a big uh, hunk of money that is acquired involuntarily that the taxpayers don't have the right to disassociate with or a uh, collection of money where people can say, you know what, I'm not getting a lot for this service, so we're going to pull out. In both cases, you have corporations having a great deal of power. But under the voluntary system, they have the discipline, one, of competition, and two, the most important check and balance in a society, the ability to disassociate with bad actors. So, yes, shortcomings in um, both systems, but that's why I support the voluntary one. By... My crit criticism of this perspective it would be that there's no good actors. There, there's no good actors on the global stage. Power abhors a vacuum. And so uh, ju just if I could cite you a historical example, Afghanistan, we went in in the 1980s and we basically helped fund the Mujahideen. We gave them Stinger missiles so they could bleed out the Russians and then they successfully bled out the Russians. When we pulled out and we said, hey, we don't have that much of a material interest in Afghanistan. Good luck. See y'all. Have fun doing whatever the fuck you want. 
then what ended up happening was all of the militia groups started getting backed by other foreign state actors. So they started getting backed by the Pakistanis. They started getting backed by the Omanis. They started getting backed by the Iranians. They started getting backed by everybody. So when you have this kind of, uh, you know, jumping American interest, then you, especially if it's non-state, if it's competing with states, then states are going to consume the the region. And so you're not really like acting like you're going to keep your hands clean to me seems completely not engaged with the way the world is you're either engaged or you're not and that actually that's a lesson of world war ii too when it comes to power vacuums those also exist as a result of state intervention libya in 2014 we saw a big power vacuum in libya we saw a big power vacuum by al-qaeda a guy's name i forget his name zarqawi in Iraq after the fall of Saddam. We saw a great power vacuum in Europe after the Second World War by giving half of Europe to Stalin. So we had 50 million deaths and Chamberlain is criticized for daring to let uh, Hitler have uh, Czechoslovakia. And then after 50 million deaths, it's given to Stalin. So the same thing applies to. So, so do you state. think it would have been There's better? There's still a power vacuum. Do, so do you think it would have been better if we had just withdrawn from Western Europe? If we had said, hey, guys, we're on a voluntary system. This doesn't match our budgetary requirements. Good luck, Europe. Have a nice one. Boop. See ya. You can. Do you think that would have oh, been better? You can always have voluntary alliances. That, uh, that, that there's nothing inconsistent with that and the philosophy of libertarianism at all. So that we just should have the ability to disassociate with uh, people like the Bandarites and the Azov Battalion in Ukraine. Or, uh, or we certainly shouldn't have had people like Victoria Nuland, who said we've spent about $5 billion since the 90s to promote democracy in Ukraine, because that created a why war. Is democracy, why is democracy in quotations? Because Viktor Yanukovych was democratically elected. And John McCain and Lindsey Graham and Amy Klobuchar uh, went to Ukraine to oust Vic democratically elected Viktor Yanukovych in the name of democracy because he was an ally of Putin. Okay, maybe, maybe we should keep it broad strokes. Yeah. But although the... there, there is something inside of me that wants to get into the whole Yanukovych was not democratically elected thing, but I'm gonna. I'm going to restrain myself from doing so right now. The yeah, I was, is... I was about to say, it seems like we could get into the weeds and we should yeah. probably keep it more with the principles. So, okay. So you're, you're saying oh. that we could have voluntary associations with the, the European nations after World War II. So, but, so you know, let, or let's it, try it doesn't it even have to be nations. It could be mm. sex throughout, uh, th throughout the world. Cause it's not like uh, from East Germany to Vladivostok, it was just evil communists. There are plenty of good people. I think Lev is even from there. And so uh, we can always have alliances. They don't necessarily have to be the exact places. Okay, so that what happens are. What happens when your competition doesn't have your good sense of goodwill? Like, so for instance, let, let's say that we move to the voluntary system. Uh, you know, we have voluntary alliances between sects, uh, S-E-C-T-S, I'm assuming, uh, in the United States and, uh, you know, and Europe. And there's some level of economic support, but it's kind of profit motivated. And on top of that, there's not much of a security commitment because we're not that interested. And frankly, it just seems like a lot of money wasted in a, in a place that we don't give a fuck about. 
And let's say that the Soviet Union doesn't agree with the voluntarist model and they say, fuck you, we're going to be a collectivized nation state that puts all of our pools, our resources into a governmental administration and a cohesive military and a cohesive like uh, economic global cultural power. And then they just steamroll Western Europe and seize it within a couple of decades. So then what? Like that, then you just what you say, oh, well, I guess I'll go do voluntary associations in a different part of the globe. Like what, what's the solution at that point? The line, the clear line you can have between are these people unfriendly, but we shouldn't uh, uh, d defend ourselves versus we should defend ourselves is embracing the principle of self-defense that all of us have both individually and in groups inside of America. It's not like, well, I can't defend myself. I first need to get a police officer here. We just would have to extend that principle uh, outside the borders of America. So it's still totally justified to defend yourself against aggressors. We just shouldn't have it. But uh, it's not us. It's somebody else. Well, then those the, the same uh, thing would uh, would apply to them. Uh, okay, so I, so Western I, I Europeans are just fucked. No, not necessarily. They are uh, fucked. You could say if uh, Britain and uh, France don't make peace with Germany in the First World War, and the Kaiser kills one point three million Frenchmen. I mean, having a state doesn't solve any of this. It attracts the worst people and doesn't give those bad people an incentive to produce a good product or service. So in the in the voluntary okay, I, sector, you can mm -hmm. still have bad actors. Like if you think of Vanderbilt or Carnegie or Bezos or Sam Walton, as evil as these people are, so long as they can't get a penny out of our pockets unless we voluntarily give it to them, that is the check and balance that bad actors have. So... Okay, so you bring you bring up the Waltons and the the Waltons basically I I believe that they have a monopoly basically through economies of scale and they've run a series of other businesses and they have like anti-competitive businesses and I'm not going to say that this is just through the the government or corporate capture this is also through their individual uh, business practices. So, how do you prevent against corporate economic monopoly within as a matter of fact i'm just going to go ahead and highlight my perspective from the other side because i, I don't want to just keep asking questions all right listen this is my perspective 800 billion to 1.5 trillion dollars uh, on an annual basis over the past 20 years is piss in the ocean compared to the 65 trillion dollars of global economic activity that you could consider american or american aligned so when you're talking about it it's actually more efficient to have a guarantee of social stability from the security apparatus in order to fucking in order to guarantee global trade. As a matter of fact, if you were to extrapolate out like Maslow's hierarchy of needs, which I'm going to misuse all the time, you basically have a few tiers for basic human need, you know, physiological, security, social, all that kind of stuff. Having an entity that's guaranteeing the first two tiers allows people in order to flourish at the higher tiers, social and ego. If you don't know what I'm talking about, you can literally just pull up Maslow's hierarchy of needs on Google. It's it's a relatively easy and simple concept. But my point being that when you don't guarantee those first bottom tiers, physical needs and security, what you're going to have is you're going to have a whole bunch of people struggling at those tiers. And there's going to be as much wasted effort at those tiers than there is going to be some level of like market efficiency or anything like that. So rather than trying to like, I don't know, reverse the governmental clock back prehistorical, I mean, we're, we're literally talking about like voluntary societies existing maybe within like small communities of a few hundred or a few thousand. We're not talking about them as states. So 
I can't travel back politically, I don't know, 10,000 years to your model. And I don't expect your model to compete against the modern models because, frankly, I think it's so it's going to be so busy squabbling. I'll shut up in a second, but it's going to be so busy squabbling over the first two or three tiers that you're just going to get fucking steamrolled by the people who adopted the other uh, the other model. One final point, which I think you'll agree with, is that one of the advantages of the market is specialization and specialization basically allows people to focus on something that they're good at and then allows those shit did i lose y'all a little bit specialization uh, we heard yeah yeah so so with specialization i was basically saying like having security outsourced to a specialized group of people who are going to guarantee some level of basic security frees up everybody else to participate in the market the way that they see and i'll I'll yield there because i was ranting for a while Nope, that, uh, that, that's totally fine. It's not necessarily me asking us to go back thousands of years. There are plenty of private security firms in places like Detroit and Chicago. There are people who have just stopped relying on the police because I have a, the major point of disagreement, I think, is the idea that government guarantees something versus they say they guarantee something. If my house gets broken into, it's not like the police uh, stopped that from happening when i was robbed that occurred uh under the existence of a government uh you had uh previous empires which were unsafe such as the japanese empire uh in the 20th century the british empire uh collapsed the german empire uh french austro-hungarian there were two russian empires that fell so it's not like there's a guarantee where we definitely have something that's just not the reality of the the situation. There were riots all over America in 2020, and the cops more or less uh, sat back. Even this uh, horrible uh, murder that took place at a school recently, the guaranteed security, I shouldn't have used the quotes again, that was belittling, I'm sorry, but the guarantee of security stopped back and arrested a mother who tried to run in and save her kids. So there are no guarantees with government, contrary to a guarantee. They're constantly provoking wars. It's never like, well, all the French people hated all the Germans and they were going to go to war, but then governments tried to hold them back from going to war. It's always governments causing this chaos and this violation of property, this mass murder campaign. So the idea of government guaranteeing something is uh, I just don't agree with that premise at all. Is there something I'm missing? Well, yeah. So number one, we we always have to deal with reality. So, you know, guarantee might be, there's a spectrum here of social services that I think we can expect. So for instance, you're right. The Uvalde Police Department completely failed, allowed 20 to 30 kids get slaughtered and basically sat on their dick for two hours. There was also a, uh, there was also a police department. I literally just posted to my Twitter. I don't know if it's like Bradenton or something like that, but it was somebody in Texas. So Texas again, and uh, somebody was walking into a summer camp shooting a gun and the cops killed him within two minutes. So there's, you know, there, there's different degrees of cop and service. Not every single police officer is going to fail. Not every single police officer is going to be John Rambo. Uh, you know, you know, there's a, even even within the P- PMCs or the PSCs, there, there's going to be a degree of competence based off of pay and incentive and all that kind of shit. And for for example, while you're while you're talking about the the private security firms or the pi- private security companies, one of them, I think, is the exact example of what we're trying to avoid, which is basically uh, 
Detroit urban survival tactics, which is just some fucking 40 or 50 year old fucking Yahoo who knows like a few cool McMatt moves. And he has like a, a viral TikTok of him disarming people with airsoft pistols. And like they, they drive like fucking Hummers and shit. And they wear like fingerless gloves while they're patrolling, uh, you know, neighborhoods. And the, the reason why I'm making fun of this guy is because like law enforcement is shitty. Okay, I spent four years in law enforcement. I understand the lack of training. I understand that like they're not always competent, intelligent, professional, et cetera, et cetera. But there is at least some level of a state standard. There's a board that holds you to certain training accountability standards. There's a board that holds you to like if you fail, you know, qualified immunity is supposed to be qualified, meaning that you have to actually perform your duties within the realm of your uh, like training in order to receive immunity from like civil suit. So th this kind of thing is like these structures that we've set are not arbitrary. They're not stupid. If anything, they're they're based off of like 3000 years of common law dating back to the Greco-Roman Empire. And that's the other thing that like uh, I'll concede while still fighting the security that was granted by nation states through the Greco-Roman Empire, through all these different places throughout all of history are the kind of places that people wanted to live. They wanted to live in Rome. They wanted to live in Greece. They wanted to live in France. They wanted to live in Germany during the zenith of these powers because they guaranteed some level of security and commerce. But what happened was, which as happens in all empires, which I think you could argue America is in this position right now, empires bite off more than they can chew. They overextend past their actual capacity. They indebt themselves and then they implode when they have too many responsibilities. I think that's a very real criticism that you could leverage at the United States of America. The question is whether or not we can dial that into a sustainable level that helps like human achievement for the next like few hundred years. Final point, Cicero, uh, a critic of the Roman Empire, like during its like later stages, who basically thought that, you know, oh, it's collapsing. We don't believe in our culture. The, the youth are decadent and pieces of shit. The, the old people are corrupt and they don't know what they're doing and this, that, the other. He predicted the fall of the empire like 300 fucking years before it happened. So between those 300 years, you could have had a cultural coalescing in order to reinforce the social structures and dial in the society. But you didn't. Basically, people allowed things to go to shit. So that's kind of where I'm saying, like, like from my perspective, your perspective would be let it go to shit. It's naturally going to collapse in on itself. And from there, we can build back a better society that includes my moral model, where my argument would be, this is already working for shitloads of people. Let's see if we can reinforce it and make it sustainable. In other words, build back better. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And all those innovations and cultural all uh, achievements I don't support uh, you know sitting back and watching things collapse at all I think it's an absolute uh, travesty and tons of people suffer as a causal result so my standard is just not to have a double standard for members of the military or people in the state department when it comes to the principle of volunteerism in the security sector would you support uh, volunteerism as far as entrance into the military or would you support conscription no, I'm okay with the current system we have, which is basically uh, you volunteer, but during your four years, your ass basically belongs to the institution. I'm okay with that. Like you, you, you sign the contract with some level of informed consent, but during those four years, you basically do what the fuck you're told or else it doesn't work. 
and if that's part of the contract, I uh, I could see that uh, th- that agreement. Still, I wouldn't there be e- exceptions and some voluntary d- discharge? Yeah, and for c- like we yeah for mechanism? physical physical or mental issues where you're incompetent to perform your duties. But that that's pretty much the only exceptions that I can think of in the military: consuming drugs, committing crimes, all that kind of stuff. Besides that, literally, they will beat your ass and stick you in a cell if you try to leave. And so th- this is the thing: is like throwing your butt this is one of the things that's kind of frustrating for me i'm not i'm not an individualist anymore i used to be i you know i'm not a libertarian anymore i'm a communitarian what i mean by that is you're born into this world people take care of you in order to raise you into adulthood you take care of those adults as they leave this mortal plane of existence and then people hopefully will take care of you when you're dying that's the communitarian contract i don't believe in this fucking individualist bullshit where you're like you're born And then you're an individual and then nobody can infringe on your individualism. If we had this contract, then literally like parents could be like, I don't want to take care of this kid anymore. He's born. He's an individual. Fuck him. Like, you know, figure it out, baby. Like, and that's kind of where the. the No, that that would be against the NAP, though. That would be against the NAP, uh, like, uh, you know, abusing, you know, children, things of that nature. Well, you're not uh, doing anything. You're just letting them you're just letting them die of uh, die of exposure. You're not doing anything aggressive. That's the m- perfect example of you contracting into something and later having obligations. Even uh, so, it's not necessarily individualist as far as communitarian goes. It's not very community-like when some members of this community get to violently impose themselves on others. I'm all for communities and doing things collectively. I don't mm. think there's anything you can do alone. Me talking into this microphone, I'm using an internet service that someone else uh Uh, created. I'm using a microphone someone else made. I'm on a computer someone else made. There's always cooperation. The question is, will this cooperation be voluntary or will it be some people coercing others? So I love the communitarian ideology. I love any voluntary association of people, whether it's commercial, whether it's nonprofit, whether it's just uh, social interactions. There's nothing that stops that. And there's a great check and balance for making sure community leaders Mm. and these organizations are much less likely to become corrupt or evil. And that is the freedom to disassociate. I love the idea of Mm. uh, communitarianism. I want to make sure that we go back to the original subject here, because we're talking about powers that already exist. And unless you can just snap your Thanos hand and make sure that everybody gets on board with these libertarian principles, you're going to have people who are going to be bullies on the world stage. And that's what I want to focus on here. Not what would have happened during World War One or before that, but literally right now with the powers that are currently here, what do we do? How do we make sure yeah. that if we, you know, if we are going to be more isolationist, that these powers are not going to come creeping and divide and conquer all these various countries that are around them? Yeah, Keith, if I if I could real quick just highlight why I'm still OK, despite all of the geopolitical disasters of the past 20 years. OK, so I, I think that um, basically if you were to use like Russia, Ukraine as like a limited example, we we are already talking about a significant portion of Europe being a part of like a voluntary defense pact that makes war with Russia almost like un- unseeable. Like, like Finland and Sweden are talking about joining like NATO is like, like basically NATO was even questioning its own purpose. And then the war in Ukraine basically re-solidified it. And now I'm pretty sure Europeans are going to be a part of NATO for the next 500 years. And so the, the point being that like 
you, Ukraine, because of this defensive pact, because of this nationalist power structure, we basically have eliminated a majority of Eastern and Western Europe from even thoughtfully being involved in the conflict. If Vladimir Putin invades Estonia tomorrow, then basically the entire of Europe is going to mobilize against them because we've already set this structure and he's already shown that he's willing to violate it. When it comes to Ukraine, God help them. Um, you know, we're basically talking about so much military aid pouring into Ukraine from nationalist structures in order to support their war, uh, their what I see as a defensive war. Um, you're basically talking about them fighting one of the world's preeminent military powers to a standstill in the casualties, despite it being like one of the most sophisticated technological technological militaries on the planet. We're talking about casualties in the tens of thousands, where I'm pretty sure that was like the opening salvo of World War Two. So for me, the, this violence, while terrible, is pretty limited, and it's limited because of these nationalist structures. Whereas in a volunteer society, these people could be consumed piecemeal, and there would be no codified response. There could easily be people uh, pulling together resources to fight Volunteers? Aggressors. Yeah, just like you support the volunteer military, I'm just taking that same principle and extending it. So just as there was once a draft from, I don't know, the Civil War on and off into the Vietnam uh, conflict, you would just extend that principle of volunteerism to, uh, to, to funding. Uh, that, that's the principle you would have with any other group in society, whether it's the Who Catholic Church fly? or it's the Waltons. I'm sorry? But but who wants to fly 3,000 miles in order to get involved in a fucking VK a year for, like, shitty... Like, like, and by the way, like, shittier technology, shittier weapons, shittier logistics because you don't have a formalized structure. Like, the reason why the United States military is so dominant on the battlefield actually isn't because, like, our technology. Our technology is amazing. But it's primarily our logistics, our ability to support like an international network of jet fighters, tanks, soldiers, telecommunications gear, and all that kind of stuff. It's more about the logistics than it is about the, the stuff. And without having that being like formalized and continuous, I don't think you have anywhere near the level of skill set from a voluntary organization. Would you say that innovation occurs in the private sector? I think it's a hybrid. I think it's absolutely a hybrid. I think you should throw it to entrepreneurial spirited people to create new products. Um, but I think that you can absolutely throw the weight of the government behind that innovation and you can incentivize it. So it's just not true to say, well, there wouldn't be any innovation in, uh, in the voluntary sector. The Wright brothers uh, took on the federal government while they were operating the Langley project to compete in uh, building the, uh, the, the first airplane. And the Wright brothers, two bicycle shop owners, fought the federal government and won. They out-innovated in the voluntary sector. That's just an example off the top yep. of my head because that uh, they came across my screen but, earlier today. There's tons of innovation in the voluntary sector. But, okay, but you don't have codification and you don't have... Unity, and that that's part of the that's part of the problem with the structure. So let's say that, like we said, we're going to send. We don't have a formalized international military structure. We don't have any alliances. The Russians have taken Ukraine, so we're going to start sending them weapons. I don't want bike shop owners creating like haphazard like anti tank rockets in their fucking shops that they're they're like you know jimmying with post hoc in order to see if they can create like a good enough model that they can sell it to the Ukrainian army. I would rather have the government say. Hey, we have a purpose-built 
military goal in mind. We are going to incentivize through funding the world's brightest minds in order to create a technology that fits this niche that we know we need on the battlefield. And as a result, we're going to create the most powerful thing in this category that makes the rest of the countries look like fucking fools if they play this chess game and they forward this one piece. And so that that where that's where for me, like the volunteerist, like, yeah, sure, from like my problem with the libertarian or anarcho-capitalist like mindset or the voluntarist mindset is it works fine if everybody else signs on. But if there's a structure outside of you that doesn't sign on and it competes against you directly, you're fucked. And that's like I, I, I don't even know what to say because you can keep appealing to principle or you can uh, appeal to like anecdotes. But like Oppenheimer didn't create the nuke because he was like, you know, just in his fucking garage playing with shit. He created the nuke because there was a specific need for it. And the government paid him and 10 other fucking geniuses to create it. And so that that's where for me, like you can't say innovation solely less rests in the private sector or solely rests in the public sector. It's a hybrid model that actually creates the best results. Mm. I'm, uh, I don't think it's uh, necessarily the best results. You said that NATO is deterring Putin, but the first time NATO declared Article 5 was in Afghanistan. And after a 20-year war, trillions of dollars, tens of thousands of civilian lives, and thousands of military members, the Taliban took over in 11 days. So it's not necessarily Listen, that... Well, the I'm good gonna, thing is we I'm going to blame the Afghans on that, okay? <laughs> like, no, no offense. But, like... like However many billions of dollars, they're like, uh-huh, uh-huh, yeah, okay, that's cool. They take it, they put it in their pocket. Oh, I ran out of bullets. Can I have some more bullets? Like, yeah. that, fuck you. Like, like, and, and by the way, like, I'm not trying to – fucking hell. I'm not trying to not admit that the, the Western failure in Afghanistan, okay? Afghanistan was an unmitigated failure, okay? But you could have talked to my friends in 2008. And they would have said, it doesn't matter how much money or security assistance you fucking give these people. They just don't fucking want it. Not enough of them want it. They don't give a shit. They don't fucking want it. Let's get the fuck out of here. Let's cut our losses. Hmm. But for, for political reasons, we had to we had to stay to say, oh, we, sorry for blowing the fuck out of your country. We're going to try to rebuild it. Here you go, buddy. Here's a few billion dollars. Let, let's, let's get that dust off your head. Let's try to do some counterterrorism. Let's see if we can get opium off of your streets. And, uh, you know, ba basically it was like a moral, a moral mission of optics to continue the conflict. I, I know that this doesn't say much about the state, but um, oh, well, I, I don't want to blame 11 days on uh, on NATO forces. I would if, rather let that blame lie with I, the Afghan people. If I could meet in the middle over here with you guys, would it be fair to say that as the United States keeps uh, growing with the bureaucracy growing, there is less accountability for making stupid decisions when it comes to going into places where we shouldn't have gone or making value judgments like Condoleezza Rice, who thought that the Iraqis would love to have democracy. So at least according to her. Well, so, is, yeah, mm -hmm. that, no, I was that, that's say, a this, problem. Th this is all hindsight, post hoc rationalization. OK, the the Osama bin Laden hated us for a variety of reasons. One of them was our support of the state of Israel. Another one was uh, Saudi Arabia asking us to be their security force during the Iran Iraq war. Uh, no, no, excuse me, the Persian Gulf War. Um, and then there, there's a whole host of reasons why he hated us. And basically, 9-11 is 
it's a momentous historical event, but our reaction of invading Afghanistan and killing fucking Taliban <laughs> and Al Qaeda, I don't give a shit about that. That was a perfectly fine and proportional response. The question is whether or not that should have been leveraged into nation building military adventurism in Iraq. And I think the, the resounding answer is absolutely the fuck not. And the neoconservative idealism that you can just show up with a few billion dollars and a few fucking uh, democratic polling machines and create a fledgling democracy has been shown to be uh, lackluster, to say the least. But this is this is hindsight. This is not. Do you the, need to be the, a the but hindsight moment. gives us insight into what we should do in the future? For mm. example, in we agree October, on that. Yeah. For example, in October of two thousand one, the Guardian reported and George Bush said in his book Decision Points that the Taliban offered to hand over Osama bin Laden to any third uh, party country. W would you have supported that as opposed to uh, going into Afghanistan? Third party country. Uh, would that third party country turn, turn him over to us? <laughs> Most likely. After 9-11, the U.S. had a ton of leverage. Got a phone call from Putin before anyone else showing his, uh, saying that uh, he, they would uh, support America. So, yeah, yeah maybe... the, w with with all the leverage they had, they could have done uh, almost anything. Iran was uh, ho holding mourning cer uh, ceremonies in support of America because of the attacks. Yeah. So if um, if bin Laden was able to go to a uh, a third country and then basically we were able to do the court trial process and get a death sentence out of it. Yeah, sure. Fuck it. But but then this also kind of begs the begs the question. Us Osama bin Laden is one man. He represents an entire ideology, and that ideology is jihadism, and jihadism basically represents something that was nascent in Afghanistan because the Taliban tolerated it, because basically the only difference between the Taliban and al-Qaeda is al-Qaeda had global ambitions, and the Taliban have national ambitions. So, uh, you know, would just because we got the one guy, would that have solved the problem of jihadists being able to train in Afghanistan? I don't it's know a, if either one of us can answer that question. It's a difference in mindset versus uh, should we look at this as a crime in which we should go find the people who committed this crime and punish them? Or should there be a much more indiscriminate war on terrorism, which is now into uh, places like Somalia fighting uh, Al Shabaab and uh, and things like that. So whatever your default well, position you... is on this is makes a vital difference when it comes to what happens after. Well, I I would see the the conflict against Al Shabaab and the conflicts about against like uh, what's the uh, what's the other motherfuckers? There's Al Shabaab, then there's that one that's in like Mali or some shit. I fucking forget their name. But anyways, Boko, there's Boko so Haram. Yeah, Boko Haram. And then um, Boko Haram. And, and then there's Jabhat al-Nusra in Syria, which according sure. to foreign uh, policy advisor Jake, uh, Jake Sullivan, the U.S. is uh, on the side of al-Qaeda in Syria fighting Assad. Uh, well, according to his February know, the, 2012 email the, the, to Hillary The enemy, Clinton. you know, the enemy of my enemy is my temporary friend who I will then fuck over. So the the point the point being that like all right you want me to play like DOD fucking five level chess I, I don't know if I can but if you want me to basically say like whether or not I think it's perfectly fine for American special forces and American military members to go to these countries and train indigenous security forces in order to handle their own shit against jihadists yeah fuck yeah 
As a matter of fact, th this would be the model that I would be advocating for. So to, to forward a positive vision so you don't have to, uh, we don't have to kind of fight in, on your turf. The My positive vision would basically be American military adventurism on a national level needs to fucking die. Full-blown invasions involving hundreds of thousands of fucking troops needs to die unless it's like literally in, in like a, a national emergency. Then when it comes to the global war on terror or security infrastructure or foreign internal defense or anti-terrorism or anything like that, what we have to do is we have to train with voluntary associations, meaning that if the government of Somalia or the government of Mali or the government of whoever wants to wants Americans to show up in order to give them guns and training and insight and tactics and strategies and logistics and all that kind of stuff, then we'll give you the knowledge and we'll give you the technology but it's going to have to be local forces who do that because that's actually if you look at Afghanistan, I would say that was the main problem. The problem isn't whether or not we gave them the technology. We gave them the fucking technology. It's not whether or not we gave them the money. We gave them the fucking money. It's not whether or not like American forces or Western forces wanted to win. Fuck yeah, we wanted to win and we put a shitload of effort into it. It's whether or not there were enough people because there were some people on the ground who wanted to help us. The question is, is there enough people? to basically make this work and the answer in afghanistan was no but i think in other places that actually had voluntary uh associations with us i think the answer could be different and we wouldn't have to spend billions of dollars we could spend a billion yeah and i think that is a drastic uh, move in the uh the, the right direction i my only caveat would be just having the same standard we'd have for any other organization even groups that provide food like food companies we could die without food shouldn't the uh, you know government control the food supply so we have guaranteed food and guaranteed health well no uh, just as i uh, would support bringing security into uh, the the volunteer well, what about sector. subsidization uh, subsidization uh, has is one aspect of uh, things that uh, creates a disincentive for people to operate efficiently. They also, since the New Deal, have paid farmers to not grow with the explicit intent by Professor uh, John D. Black from Harvard has uh, basically given the government the idea that uh, to keep food prices high and the economy stimulated, food prices should be higher than they otherwise would be. So things like licensing also make food more uh, more expensive. Anytime you have a coercive intervention by an uninterested third party, you're going to get lower quality and higher prices than you otherwise would, would get. Counterpoints is thinking it's not a glitch. Okay, so, so that's well, or, or, I, 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 I think we could have just uh, come to... A, uh, a, a disagreement and it's much better to have clarity of disagreement than the idea that any one of us is going to wave a uh, white flag in this uh, one hour discussion well as far as the Wait, can y'all oh yes i could hear you mm -hmm. i could hear you okay so as no, far... i i do have a point but if we're moving on we can move on uh get to get the point and then i'm going to move on Okay. Yeah. So basically what I would say is that efficiency is not the only thing that we should care about. And just because the government created a incentive for farmers to not 
produce uh, doesn't mean that I think that they should basically do the exact opposite, where food should be subsidized in order to be extremely low. And we should have some level of guarantee and surplus for like the, the mouths of Americans on a routine basis that's basically federally subsidized. The reason why I'm saying that is because we're in the we're in the we're looking at shortages right now. We're looking at logistics breakdowns because of COVID. We're looking at logistics breakdowns because of the war in Ukraine. We're looking at logistics breakdowns in general because of the shitty economy that we've been a part of. Uh, but at the same time, I think that you could basically say, hey, here's something that we need to guarantee. The fact that Americans have enough calories in order to survive in the next few years. And basically incentivizing that from a governmental standard, I think, is a perfectly acceptable thing. Um, that way you can, like you were saying, they're keeping food prices artificially high. I would like them to keep food prices artificially low so consumers can do what they want. And if there's some waste in the system, if there's some surplus, I am perfectly okay with waste and surplus when it comes to food and security. Not everything has to be efficient. Yep. That certainly would be better than shortages, most shortages caused by the regulations and licensing, which decrease the amount of competitors, which give uh, employees less options for where to work, which gives uh, consumers fewer choices but, in the but marketplace. Instance, like but but, but, but mm -hmm. the three biggest things that are subsidized in America would be healthcare, housing, and higher education. And we've seen those prices skyrocket. So again, here's a perfect example of government saying they guarantee something while making it more difficult than ever because they have no incentive to uh, please the consumer. So the, but is, uh, I, I don't mean to get us mm. too off of this, but this is the same mm. point with security in a uh, realm that people deal with on a uh, daily basis. Yeah, so uh, Lev, I don't know if you're trying to move on, but I have counterpoints. I want um, to move on, but I can't help but be curious about what you want to say right now. So I want to finish okay. this part up, but go for it. Yeah, I'm sorry. I'll, yeah, I'll close so, there. Okay, so uh, I won't close there. Uh, the, <laughs> the, uh, the, the point uh, being that when it – okay, so when it comes to these things, we, we kind of – you know, subsidization, it seems like you were like, okay, that's better than the alternative. It's still bad. Uh, when it comes to regulation, I, I don't have this like – no regulation ever fucking perspective. So for instance, when it comes to like the animal, like the meat industry or whatever, that shit is fucking horrific. Like I don't want to bring deregulation to the meat industry that, you know, basically they're already beating the dog shit out of cows and pigs and fucking stun gunning them and slaughtering them in shitty ways as it is. If anything, I want to bring more regulation. Also, when it comes to uh, the like, like, okay, so that will preclude if Jethro in his fucking pig farm in Alabama wants to stun gun random pigs with a 50,000 volt taser and then fucking shoot. You're goddamn right that Jethro's fucking pigs aren't going to be on the market because I don't want fucking monsters breeding and fucking shitting out inferior product onto the fucking uh, onto mm. the market. You can say that it's going to self-regulate. There's going to be a lot of people fucking poisoned by that self-regulation. Then when it comes to uh, the security apparatus, no, like, like or, or healthcare, for instance, with these costs, I don't like, you have to understand at some point there are certain costs that we're going to have to take on. And you're right that the middle model is actually what's fucking us. When we look at like governments with like nationalized programs or whatever, they spend 33% less on healthcare. And the reason why is because there's a fucking buddy buddy system where we have federal subsidization, like you pointed out with the defense industry going into the pockets of people who are privately incentivized. So they want 
to continue the inefficiencies within the system, specifically to incentivize them. But that doesn't mean that our government has to be fucking pussies about it. It doesn't mean that they have to take that line down. They could actually go around and say, hey, motherfuckers, this is how we're doing it. This is how much you're getting. But then that would involve having politicians with balls. And I'm looking around and I'm not seeing last time we had a politician with balls was fucking uh, Teddy fucking Roosevelt. So I'm not holding hope out for anybody with fucking that. Uh, that goes days. to a very big question, which is, can the system and I don't want to dwell too much on this, but can the system survive when the system acts like it acted when there were competent people at the helm? But now the people are incompetent. Can the system still survive with those incompetent people? We're we're doing a lot better than if we had a monarch. I'll tell you that. So uh, the 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 concentration uh, Keith's uh, criticisms of concentration of power, I agree with, which is why I don't want more concentrated power. But I think there's a balance between the the concentrated power of a dictator or a monarch in which case if incompetent people are ruling it's just a fucking unmitigated disaster and then i think there's another side of the spectrum which is basically no one in charge or only volunteer shit in charge and i view these things as equally mm. potentially destructive well speaking of volunteer now i want to move on back to the original point of the discussion which has to do again with voluntarism when it comes to making decisions of whether we go to war whether we protect our neighbors so on and so forth the thing that uh, gets to me is there is a certain hierarchy of knowledge and i'm not one of those people who says that oh only the experts know what's best for you a lot of time these experts have certain interests of their own but at the same time, if you were to talk to Farmer Jethro, for example, on what Farmer Jethro thinks of Ukraine, that's where I get into some uh, some problems when it comes to our people going to voluntarily do certain things that they may not have the foresight and the expertise to know are going to be in the best interest of uh, not only the defense, I'd say, of the countries like the Baltic states, if we're talking about Russia versus Ukraine, but also the interest of America itself, as far as what happens when Russia or any other rival power starts acquiring more and more and more territory to the extent that now it can make certain demands on the United States that it otherwise would not have been able to. So that's what I see as being the slippery slope of just allowing full voluntary action when it comes to these decisions. But I'm curious, Keith, uh, what you think of that? Because you still have the uh, principle of self-defense against aggressors and the freedom to exchange with people. And the free market has made it easier to exchange with people who you don't have to ride a horse and buggy to visit and hand them a pile of cash. People are able to make cash transfers through PayPal, Venmo, Google, Bitcoin, all of these uh, uh, other alternatives. So it's not should people cooperate sh or shouldn't they? It's is the set of rules that we're embracing going to make it easier to fight the tyrannies that Counterpoint uh, has uh, correctly said exists when it comes to jihadism or uh, evil regimes in Russia or Serbia or anywhere else or China on, uh, uh, on the uh, global scale? So I think embracing free market uh, ideas makes us much more innovative than we otherwise would be, which puts us in a position to have more leverage than we otherwise would in a uh, statist model, which uh, the, the, it, you get much less innovation than you otherwise would have. And the innovation's very concentrated. There's no real incentive or attempt to please consumers because you get their money. Not only if you do a bad job, you get more money and more power if you do a bad job. 
Well, okay, but but this is a little bit baloney because basically, like, this is the, this is the one thing that I really want to push back in libertarian and anarcho-capitalist circles. Like, the Raytheon doesn't build dog shit missiles. Boeing doesn't build dog shit jet engines. Like, they build good shit. And they build good shit because they're paid good shit in order to make good shit, and they're held to that standard. There's plenty of, like, fucked up things. Like, for instance, like, the Army combat uniform was supposedly a drug deal between a, a general and, uh, you know, some some buddies of his at the at the uniform place. But at the same time, like, there was one idea, which was, like, can we make a digital camouflage pattern that is good in multiple environments? That's a good question worth asking. It's just whether or not the actual end product uh, delivers, and the answer was no. And so the these innovations, these R&Ds, all that kind of stuff, they... They do deliver good, solid goods all the time. They're held to standard. And when it comes to the military, oftentimes what you'll see is that R&D project is done in the field. Literally, they create the conditions through which innovation is possible. They break apart the machines in ways that can only be tested through the environments in which they're expected to survive. And then through that constant like private-public partnership, they're able to get enough feedback in in order to build truly impressive technologies. And this is so uh, the, really what I want you to pull out of this is you don't become a public servant and a member of the military or a member of the military industrial uh, complex. And then you're like, I'm going to build dog shit now. And I'm going to build dog shit so the, the company can make more money. Nobody says that shit when they wake up. And then you don't become a member of the private sector. And then you wake up and you slap on your tie. And I'm like, the market forces are going to demand of me to be a model employee today. No one says that shit. There's fucked up people in the public sector. There's fucked up people in the private sector. And the truth is that as much as there's an incentive structure that's positive for the market, there's some advantages to the centralization of power and the centralization of wealth. And it's better to have these models bounce off of each other in a hybrid model where they can take advantage of each other's, uh, you know, take advantage of each other's features rather than just saying only one of them has the answer to everything. That That's my frustration with talking to libertarians. And that's my frustration with talking to fascists is both models have flaws, which is why you pit them against each other and have them fight. Yeah, the statism model has flaws, as we discussed earlier. So saying that uh, the voluntary sector or the private sector has flaws is uh, not necessarily a uh, the, the knockdown argument against it. Uh, do you have this standard for anyone else like like Amazon, who has done a great job at making books more affordable to people at lower income levels, would you say that they would have the right to coerce people into funding them this way? Uh, we could have uh, maybe uh, some more innovation out of Amazon and they could have a structured, uh, coordinated you, uh, the operation that allows us you to not already have a that with do you not already have that with wage pressure where they basically try to intentionally underpay their motherfuckers until they basically like make them like bankrupt and living on the outside of the warehouse and pissing bottles in order to function on a day-to-day -day basis? Do you not think that there's some level of they're trying to squeeze every single dime out of their employees so they have more for R&D and have more for administrators and hires up? Like you're talking to me about the, the, the tyranny of coercion. What about the tyranny of the coercion of this fucking like this motherfucker who can't find another job? So he's working for 50 $15 an hour and he's practically homeless in one of the most expensive zip codes in the country. Now you might say just move. 
I would also say just move. If you're making 15 bucks an hour in fucking Seattle and you're trying to, you know, rent a, an apartment with six other fucking people, move. But you're you're going to tell me with a straight face that there aren't like perverse incentives and coercion going on in the private sector as well. Also, like, can you say that like you're I'm assuming you're a private employee. Can you say that with a straight face within your own private employee structure that everything's going swimmingly? Uh, no, under no system is there this perfection, but. The libertarian solution allows you to disassociate okay. with bad actors, and that's why it's superior. So all of the shortcomings that you have said about the voluntary sector apply tenfold to the state because they don't face uh, real competition, and you can't uh, voluntarily mm -hmm. disassociate with them. I feel like we've uh, taken okay, another so, so turn. What about, okay, so what about during the 19th century? No, go no, on. No, I want to be. Then, I want to be a little then, bit of a dick, Keith. I respect you, but I'm gonna be. I'm gonna be. A, I'm gonna right. be a little bit of a dick. All right. After you so be what, a yeah, dick, I want to get the 19th century. Okay. Later. After you be a dick, I want to get back to the uh, ooh, conflict of the uh, world policing. But uh, anyway, be a dick. Okay. Yeah, so, uh, so there was so there was a lot in the 19th, 19th century. century you're gonna want to narrow it down, please. Okay. Yeah. So what about in the 19th century where basically like, yeah, well, you, you could really pick an example and we could just follow it down the rabbit hole. How about like all, you know, back when we were strip mining with explosives and tunneling under the world, you know, tr tunneling under the world's crust and basically only the only jobs were in like material extraction. And we had woefully like unsafe environments in which like people were working their dicks off and dying in order to basically get us our raw materials. What about during like, you know, basically the, the factories that everybody knew was unsafe and they had to work there anyways because there was no alternative. What about during the late 19th century when there were literally a shitload of yeomanry farmers, basically farmers who were farming for subsistence? The economic models no longer worked, so they got kicked off of their own farms. They had to go do factory work. And when they were doing factory work, all of the factories, despite losing half of their employees every six months, they kept the wages low instead because even though they were losing money, because they they weren't retaining talent and they were pissed off about it and they were bitching about it. They didn't want labor costs to go up. So they just kept prices low for wages. And they basically constituted like a, uh, a, a price floor for labor across an industry just to fuck over the workers. What about all of those situations during a largely laissez-faire economy? Under the more laissez-faire economy, you had uh, a much larger increase in wages over time. You had uh, attracting people uh, all over the planet from uh, through Ellis Island and Angel Island because it was better than their alternatives. Again, not perfect, but by having some sort of competition, you give people more leverage than they otherwise would have. We saw a drastic decrease in prices Again, because there was an incentive to please consumers. Vanderbilt did this with uh, steamships as well as railroads. Rockefeller drastically decreased the price of oil and saved the whales in the meantime. Carnegie drastically uh, d decreased the cost of steel. Henry Ford drastically decreased the price of cars. And instead of having horse manure all over the street, which was worse for the environment, this was actually a move in the right direction, just as Bezos and Walton have uh, been able to uh, benefit consumers by okay, so lowering you, prices. So, uh, so yeah, so that, do you, that's my Do answer. you have an answer to the perverse incentive of carbon consumption? Do you have like a market-based solution to the perverse incentive of carbon consumption? The perverse uh, incentive, as far as externalities go, it would yeah. uh, it, it would be justified as far as um, I guess you wouldn't call it 
reparations, but uh, when some people are uh, certainly over polluting at some point, it's like if I have a fire in my chimney, that's not bad enough. If I'm dumping tons of waste onto other people's property, well, then that's a clear violation of property rights. So again, instead of having well, let, well, a say... monopoly court system, you could mm -hmm. uh, instead have a uh, c competing enforcement mechanism to try to have a much cleaner environment. If you want innovation to get rid of these terrible environmental externalities, well, then you should embrace the principles of, uh, of free markets. But what free market incentive would in like, like would embrace environmentalism? Look at all the companies that brag about uh, the certain environment. Brag about or actually do something about actually do something about uh, cars uh, get m many more miles to the gallon than is federally required because they're uh, competing that's one of uh, of many examples boats and planes use less uh, uh, gasoline per gallon than they previously did those are not just what they say that's uh, the Unfortunately, you've kind of stumbled into a little bit of my realm of expertise. So I have a I have a buddy who who works for the natural gas industry, and he basically designs the turbines that are coming out. And literally, we had this conversation. We've had this conversation like three or four times. And he said, we produce the engines to produce exactly as much pollution as we are allowed to under regulation. And if we didn't have a regulation we would produce as much fucking waste as we want because the truth is that who gives a fuck? We're just trying to build a good goddamn engine for our end consumer and our end consumers don't always care about pollution. So if there's end consumers who don't care about, you know, externalities and if the externality is so large. So for instance, like I'm not saying all the, the climate alarmists are right. It's like 93 degrees in Florida today, but you know, when is it not? Uh, so, but let's, let's play out a hypothetical in which the climate alarmists are right. And we are slowly polluting our way through carbon emissions to a world that is going to have storms and climate catastrophes and mass migration events and weather events, the likes of whom you have not seen. They, they will be biblical in their, in their implication is what these people say. Now I'm not saying they're right, but what if they are right? What market solution is going to save us from this in time for us to actually do something about it. Well, government is a a, a huge polluter, so uh, n not having a uh, monopoly on violence would be a but move the... in in that direction. And I don't know these specifics. I don't even know how books are made. So to say what would happen in the future when billions of people could potentially be cooperating towards some. Uh, c collective end that makes the air cleaner than it otherwise would be uh, to say I know how that's going to operate is uh, is ridiculous. But having a state doesn't solve that either. I mean, the biggest externality well, would be indiscriminate bombings by governments. I mean, isn't that uh, an externality not, or engaging in well, nuclear exchanges? Couldn't that be just as world ending as a carbon emission? Wait, 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 wait. So one, we don't do indiscriminate bombing. Like, like that hasn't happened since, I don't know, the 1950s. So that's kind of like. Well, it happened into the 70s in Vietnam, Laos and Cambodia. And there have been a lot of civilians killed. Indiscriminate? In, in Vietnam, Laos and Cambodia? Absolutely. Yes. Fuck no. Then why didn't we bomb the North? Uh, why didn't we bomb Hanoi? In, in, 
indiscriminate. I'm just referring as uh, non-targeted. Well, and we didn't just bomb South Africa. Yes, there are certain geographical locations that oh. they focus on. But OK, all right. I'm, I'm being I'm being a little bit of a dick. But if we were if we were using indiscriminate bombing campaigns in Vietnam, we would have leveled North Vietnam within a few weeks. We were bombing the jungle that were the logistics supply chain. So it was very discriminate. It was very intentional. We were bombing it like largely uninhabited areas that were being used by the guerrillas in the NVA in order to funnel resources into the south. And we just as easily could have bombed all the major cities in the north, including the ports where there were Russian and Chinese consultants, but we decided not to because we didn't want to suck in Russia and China. So, no, I, I reject indiscriminate uh, past like 1956. And that was a matter of technology, not a matter of like national choice. And then when it comes to like oil consumption or whatever, the, the power of the government lies in the fact that it can set the agenda. So, for instance, if they if like 51 or 60 of our legislated representatives showed up and they said, hey, guess what, guys, even though we love oil, we love trucks, we love F-350s, we love diesels, we love all this shit. It's literally going to kill us in a few fucking years. We're banning petroleum consumption. And on top of that, we're in, in order to ban the petroleum consumption by 2050. We are incentivizing R&D development through the government in order to develop basically the nuclear bomb of clean energy. We are incentivizing that through billions and billions and billions of tax dollars. Not only can they do that, I'm pretty sure they're actually doing it right now. Whereas I'm pretty sure if you talk to the private market, they would say, well, we don't know what's going to happen with the climate. Fuck it. Like, so, so why would I give up the ability to set an agenda that is exterior from profit? Like, like, and this is one of, this is one of the things that's really frustrating about like the, the mono variable analysis of the world that I get when it comes to libertarianism in anarcho-capitalism is like, okay, you have a worthy criticism of the world. But you have a one-size-fits-all solution, and the world is not that simple. Like, there are incentives outside of the market. There are incentives outside of profit. I want to spend time with my family. It has nothing to fucking do with the profit or the... Like, if the market had its fucking way, I would basically work myself to death, and I wouldn't spend a single fucking ounce with my with my uh, child slave. And I, they would only give me enough, like, time off to raise him to be literate so he can punch buttons in the fucking factory. So, no, like I, I reject the fact that we can all solve all problems through a mono variable, which is voluntarism. Like, no. Well, uh, that would it's not just the profit incentive. It's the voluntary profit incentive because governments make profits. All employees that spend five dollars on gasoline to get to work and make $200 that day, they're profiting. The politicians are profiting. So there's still profit in the state sector. It's just a matter of voluntary. And it's not always about profit, just as you correctly illustrated. Sometimes you want to spend time with your family. The principle is self-ownership in voluntarism, not unrestricted profit. If you want to earn a lot less money or you want to do whatever, do you, you totally have the right to do that. There's nothing wrong with that at all. You, Christi Christian monks, you I yourself? think, are the poorest people. Um and uh, the Christian monks are, uh, uh, I think uh, everyone owns themselves, simply meaning they have a better claim to their body, time, and justly acquired property than anyone else. Okay. Well, then there's obvious limits on that. Like, so for instance, the need to employ yourself, the need to make enough money to survive and subsist, the need to basically participate within your society, the need to basically, you know, do, do all these basic functions, right? 
Like, like, like there's limits on your own self-ownership. Correct. And that's why uh, it, it's important to extend this principle to others and engage with them on a voluntary basis. There's nothing uh, c contradictory about needing things in the world. So you want to achieve your ends peacefully through persuasion or mutually beneficial exchange. That's totally consistent. The uh, Yeah. And then, Lev, I think we are hitting a little bit of a dead end because the thing about it is I'm I'm OK with your moral principle framework extended to the maximum degree it can be within the real world with like avoiding disastrous externalities and disastrous geopolitical calamities. So, for instance, if we said like our military is all voluntary at this point, sweet. If we said that, like, uh, you know, tax revenue you don't have a final say on where the money goes, but you can select a preference on how your dollars are spent. And we will consult in like a, a general representative consensus how we budget the system based off of your individual tax dollars. But if we have like immediate needs, we're going to take care of the immediate needs. Okay, fine. Like add a voluntary element to the tax structure. That's fine. I don't give a shit. Um, and then th th there's so many things that I'm perfectly okay with as a principle integrating into our culture and our society and our fabric. And if anything, like I think that we would benefit from adopting your mindset. But my framework is always going to be what happens when people reject your framework. They, they create a competitive structure that outcompetes yours. And then what keeps those people at bay? And for me, the thing that keeps those people at bay is the state. And not only is it the state, but these are real moral choices. So when you're talking about liberal democracy, I know that everybody likes to shit on like the Western liberal democratic mixed economy capitalist world. But throughout the 20th century, that was a real moral choice between that and authoritarian communism. And the impacts were real. They weren't just material or economic or abstract. They were real choices for the people who lived under these systems. And when you're talking about like jihadism or theocracy or, or fucking uh, like authoritarian, whatever the fuck China is right now, author authoritarian state capitalism, whoever controls the, the global hegemony actually does control the fate, material, spiritual, economic, and political, of billions of people. So who runs these systems is important. And I'm not ready to say, oh, liberal democracy, you know, we had a good run, but fuck it. You know, hmm. let the uh, let the other people take over now. Like like nah, hmm. I'm good. Like, well this is I, uh, this is also this is also why I want to bring up World War Two, even though that's already passed, but uh, Keith how would you have handled the whole situation with uh, Hitler when it comes to Hitler going from one country to another? How would this work on a voluntary basis? If uh, we have to keep in mind that back then the economy was really bad, most people did not want a repeat of World War I, so it was already not looking too good for the people who actually wanted to engage in the conflict, but eventually we did. So how would that have been handled on a voluntary basis? You could have taken the approach that uh, one of the most famous foreign policy analysts ever took, a guy named George Kennan, who uh, more or less uh, got the containment theory uh, coined uh, to him in a foreign affairs article, where you would build an alliance with France and draw a red line for Hitler in France, considering he had uh, eastward ambitions. Um, when it comes to, uh, again, we're... Uh, often ignoring the costs of war when we get into things like this. So there were, in America alone, 405,000 deaths. A lot of these uh, 
all the countries had conscription, not just conscription, majority conscription, the worst form of forced labor that could ever exist. You could say it's the greatest externality because it's not uh, something people consented to. Uh, Winston Churchill even wrote in the opening, I, I had this because I thought I would have an opening statement. Here's Winston Churchill in his book, uh, The Gathering Storm. He said, one day President Roosevelt told me that he was asking publicly for suggestions about what the war should be called. I said at once, the unnecessary war. There never was a war more easy to stop than that which has just wrecked what was left of the world from the previous struggle. The human tragedy reaches its climax in the fact that after all the exertions and sacrifices of hundreds of millions of people and the victories of the righteous cause, we have still not found peace or security and that we lie in the grip of even worse perils than those we have surmounted, referring, of course, to the uh, Soviet Union. So again, a perfect uh, example of an unintended uh, consequence. Yeah, but so what then we create voluntary structures like 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 so so for instance like world war world war one i think most people will concede is like a, a fluke of nationalist tribalist bullshit that culminated in in millions of deaths that were unnecessary if there was an unnecessary war it was probably world war one then when it comes to world war ii it was from the the leftover mistakes of world war one because we had a, a whole bunch of like moral judgments about Germany's individual fucking culpability and starting the war by backing up the Austrians and all this bullshit. So, so we basically fucked them over so hard that they give in to fascism. Well, now that you've smashed fascism and communism has reared its ugly fucking head and filled the void. Now what? Now you can say like, we're playing whack-a-mole and we need to have a more stable system. But I think that we've reached a pretty stable system. We've had national level conflicts in what, like Vietnam, Korea, um, what, like the Persian Gulf. I'm trying to think of a few other ones, but basically, like, we've had conflicts that have been a, a, a millionth of the size of World War II or World War I. But because we had these smaller level conflicts, we basically maintained a larger global order and stability. And so, that, that, that's actually something that I haven't seen you acknowledge and maybe you just don't believe it do you think that the small conflicts since like world war ii have prevented world war three or do you think that they're setting the stage for world war three well setting the stage uh certainly uh could, could be one aspect i also think it's uh bleeding us dry either they have to tax the money or inflate the money supply and devalue the dollar they're sending a lot of guys over there who would be I don't know, construction workers or building great buildings and making America stronger that way. Uh, the, as I mentioned previously, listing off Austria-Hungarian, uh, Austro-Hungarian Empire, the Russian empires, these empires constantly uh, f fail as a cause or result of war and overexpansion. So it's very, uh, could uh, e easily be said that it made us weaker than we otherwise uh, would have uh, been. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I think we've I think we've reached kind of the natural co conclusion because th this is my my perspective is I hear a bunch of Cicero's coming into the Roman Empire and saying it's all over. There's so many barbarians. They're all over the place. They're you know, they're they're flooding our lands. They're they're destroying us. This, that, the other. You know, the the Jewish revolutionaries are manipulating all of us against each other. And uh, basically, like the, the empire is going to collapse at any any second. That, that seems like what the, the Cicero's of my world are saying. 
And I'm saying, motherfucker, we are the strongest, richest, most powerful empire on the planet. And if we weren't being pussies, maybe we could get our shit together and figure out a way to be sustainable where we don't collapse and implode and, you know, live the life cycle of all empires. And so uh, that that kind of really determines our path forward is do we take what we have right now and then leverage it into something that's more sustainable and then continue the American imperial project? Or do we kind of recede from the, the world stage in like an abrupt and ugly way? And I, I'm not trying to straw man you because I, I don't think that you, you are like this. But for me, my frustration is I feel like there's the over expansionists. There's the people who think that we can do everything all the time and we can tell China what to do and we can tell Russia what to do and we can tell, you know, everyone what to do. And they'll always listen to us because we're the big baddies. That's going to lead to the overextension and the death of the empire. And then there's people who are saying we should recede. We should be isolationist. Fuck all this shit. We're wasting too much money. Let's let's recede. And I think they're likewise. They're giving away the empire. Uh, so, you know, as always, I, I market myself as a centrist. Uh, I'm in, in like smack dab in the middle of these two perspectives. Yeah. And uh, I uh, don't support uh, isolating ourselves at all, just as I'm not an isolationist in my state or community. I'm constantly uh, interacting with people, trading, learning new skills. Well, that's a bit of a different uh, definition. I mean, let's be fair, like counterpoint is specifically talking well, no, 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 about no, isolationism it, it, in the sense of a government no, making I'll, out. I'll pay. Yeah. I'll play. Okay. I'll play Keith uh, a compliment. If all voluntarists were like you, I wouldn't spend so much time shitting on libertarians and voluntarists. Uh, I'm not going to lie, because basically what you acknowledge is something that I don't hear acknowledge, which is the fact that if the state disappears or withdraws or no longer holds this power, then the private sector or individuals or communitarian minded people who don't have the coercion of the state are going to have to fill that vacuum. And that's something that I don't hear addressed often. I often hear, well, only worry about yourself. Like, that that's what I hear. Mm. I hear, like, rugged individualism. Whereas from you, I hear more like, that's the moral frame. But the truth is that we can still intervene in the global and communitarian stage as we see fit. But you should have this moral ability as your first principle. And, and I think that's a, a better argument. Mm. And don't we know. don't even have to change things too drastically. We could just tell the world we uh, are abiding by the Ten Commandments of thou shall not steal and thou shall not murder. So, yeah, I'm not necessarily an isolationist, do your own thing, rugged, individualist Robin Crusoe. Obviously, mm. that's all ridiculous bullshit. As, uh, but, but that was my point earlier in saying nothing that you do or use you have done by yourself. So we're constantly going to cooperate. Is it going to be peaceful or is it going to be some people calling the shots at the expense of, uh, mm. uh, of others? Remember Obama well, and, said and you and didn't sorry. build those roads. Well, yeah. and he's right. I also d didn't build uh, the, the pencil that I used uh, when I signed. Yeah, it, it also it also wasn't the government. It was a coalition of many people who came together for the for the purpose of that construction project. But the uh, yeah, so so I'm I'm good with this and I, I think I've kind of resolved your perspective and then my only uh my only problem is i think that the market i think that individualism i think that voluntarism is always going to incentivize things that are uh primarily profit-based pr primarily individualistic primarily going to be this rugged individualist perspective whereas the world has things that don't abide by economics which i would include violence 
Um, I would include nation state violence and violence in general and uh, starvation and famine and disease as things that lie outside the realm of the efficiency of the market. And therefore, I would rather have uh, a cohesive, organized, accountable institution that keeps these externalities in mind. And um, I don't care if they're efficient at all times. I don't care if they're efficient. Uh, if you're if you're preparing for a disaster, you don't have to be efficient because you're it's like a, I don't want to be I don't want to be efficient during summer with my crop and only make enough food in order to eat during summer because there could be a winter. And so I want a collectivized uh, institution that looks out for winter like scenarios. And while I don't trust the government to do it, I do think they serve a vital role in that purpose of being the people who are looking out for the externalities. And I think uh, private organizations do that uh, as well. On Super Bowl Sunday, there are a ton of more wings sold than any other day in the year or uh, turkeys during Thanksgiving. It's not like there's some dry winter because you constantly have an incentive for these companies to plan in advance. And so, so there addresses the Profit also, again, profit applies to all of the politicians, all the members of the military. They're acting in their own self-interest by, you know, getting money for things. They're not all unpaid nuns and uh, volunteers. Mm. So th that, uh, th that happens as far as coordination and cooperation. I think it's underestimated the amount of cooperation that occurs in the voluntary sector at all time. So just going to the airport a couple weeks ago, I used a Samsung cell phone with AT&T service connected to my uh, the, my CenturyLink Wi-Fi to contact different company Uber who uses Ford car to get me to an American Airlines plane. And I ate food that was made by someone else and they didn't make all the silverware. You constantly have this cooperation. That's such a web of complexion that already exists. The idea that that can't be extended to the realm of protecting individuals and protecting private property is uh, mm. absolutely uh, I, not I, true. I, I got to throw something in here with what you said right now. And I agree that we have seen, especially in places like Detroit, the free market at work as far as being able to concentrate specifically on keeping the people there safe. One thing that I would add, though, is I want to bring things back again to the idea of isolationism. And we're going to go soon, by the way. Sneed those super chats right now because we're going to go soon. And I want to get to the super chats. But anyway, and subscribe. But anyway, when it comes to isolationism. Sick profit, man. Always ah! looking for profit. Yes, indeed. <laughs> when it comes to isolationism, not in the sense of, uh, and I don't know who these libertarians are that you've spoken to counterpoints, because honestly, I think a lot of the libertarians that I've spoken to, at least, they were like Keith. Like, they were very community uh, focused. And I think that that's a very beautiful thing. However, my problem with uh, Keith's view is more of the view of isolationism when it comes to the going or not going to the defense of a allied country or of a country that you would be able to anticipate once Russia or China or whoever ends up going there, then they're going to go here, then they're going to go, you know, like the whole domino theory, I guess you could say, uh, back during the Cold War. That is something that I think is not something that a uh, 
organized group of people as far as a community would be able to make that good of a decision on they're going to be focused on the well-being of their community america first you know nothing wrong with that but that's my big issue there like i'm i'm not sure if we're going to be able to leave it to voluntary efforts of these communities to make those bigger decisions on the world stage not to say that there's not a lot of waste either but you see like i just want to focus on this just for a bit that's my uh that's my problem here keith i would love to hear anything uh, you have to say on that and then we're going to go to super chats well i don't want to be too boring and just uh j and just repeat myself but if it's security you want i think a uh state coercively funded monopoly is the the worst way to go uh, well, I mean, I guess it doesn't and really I answer. Can... Okay, go for it. Yeah. I mean, well, I, no, I, I was just going to say, if, if we want to do a, yeah, if we want to do a little, like, kind of like a closing summary before yeah. we get to Super Chats, I'll try to keep it simple. Uh, but I do, I do think that a, um, not a state monopoly on violence, but a state guarantor, obviously we talked about how guarantees aren't guarantees, that we have to deal with the, the material world as it exists. But I think that having the state step in with a alleged non-profit incentive in order to incentivize behavior that otherwise might not be incentivized by the market is a perfectly acceptable thing and to bring it back to maslow's hierarchy of needs with the uh, physical needs security needs social needs ego needs uh self-actualization needs i am okay not with the government controlling the security and physical tier but with them incentivizing non-market actions within those tiers that way people are gu guaranteed quote unquote some level of growth in this area and some level of access within this area that way the social ego and self-actualization needs can flourish and i'm okay with that as a model mm. is there also anything that you would want to say Yield. regarding ready for super chats all right wait we have one ready. super chat we have one super chat right now unless we get another one i have just a quick question to counterpoints would there be anything uh, that you would add as far as the mm. isolationism question goes? I know we've been over this a little bit, but I really just want to concentrate as much as I can on the question of can an organized group of people who are voluntary make these kind of big world-changing decisions when it comes to do we support Ukraine, do we support so on and so forth? Yes, certainly. Just I, I don't, I don't think can... so, and I think they're... Mm. No, sorry. Oh, go ahead. Uh, I was just going to say, just as we can have this concept of a phone that's very primitive, only the very richest of uh, the rich can afford it, and it's not very good quality. We get large-scale cooperation uh, on things like cell phones, on things like books, on things like uh, computers. They're constantly uh, trading ideas and skills with people. It's generally through uh, commercial interests. And th that is uh, a num those are rather a number of uh, real world examples that uh, you get when you get large scale uh, cooperation. It's people acting in their self interest by only being able to, um, you know, give something in exchange that someone else wants, whether it's their money, their labor, or anything like that. So yeah, just uh, the, the same reason you have a lot of products in America, and those products can also be seen in New Zealand and Australia and throughout Europe, as well as Russia. But people are constantly uh, trading in goods and services, and that's how uh, you can expand the amount of power and influence you have in the world on a voluntary basis. 
Yeah, but that doesn't address the immediate uh, crises that have occurred right now when one country invades another. That's more where I'm going with this. So, like, counterpoints, you disagree with what Keith uh, what Keith was talking about right now as far as the response goes. It can't really be on a local, voluntary scale, these big questions of what to do about Russia versus Ukraine. Yeah, I don't I don't think so. Uh, if you if you look at like American military history, for instance, I took a American military history class. The the militias during the Revolutionary War were lauded for their efforts and they should be. But when it actually came to the battles that were won in concert with the French, it was the professional army that was able to do so. When it comes to the, uh, you know, the global American logistical empire that I think is capable of dealing with these international security threats, I don't see a private organization replicating what we're talking about or being stable. I see it being very fickle, where uh, basically they might stick there. They might be like, yeah, hurrah, Ukraine, let's go support them. Let's go, let's go help them out. And then they get like artillery striked by, you know, Russian artillery that can shoot like, you know, 30 miles outside of the Ukrainian artillery. And they're like, ah, fuck that. That seems like a lot of work. And I, we just lost like 50 dudes in this uh, governments through the power of um, can stay the course a, a lot longer. And so that that's where I think the, the power of concentrated power, concentrated wealth, concentrated will, while it can be nefarious is oftentimes uh, more consistent. And this uh, th this is a uh, criticism that the free market has. One is, well, it gives too much power to too few people. Also, it doesn't uh, give you the ability to concentrate power. So uh, we get both of those all the time. It's all about finding equilibriums. And the best way to find that equilibrium between being subject to terrible actors to the point where you can't operate uh, without uh, b being subject to them versus them having no power at all is the ability for pre people to uh, associate voluntarily. And th the only reason I'm closing out here is I, I think I've made uh, m my point. I don't want to waste uh, the viewer times or uh, Mr. Counterpoints. Well, I definitely appreciate uh, you, uh, both of your guys' input on this question. It is, I think, a very important question today. And uh, yeah, the people watching this, let me know what you think in the comments below. We have a super chat, and this is the one super chat, and no more super chats unless somebody sends a super chat right now. Okay, you're on the you're on time right now because we're almost about to go. So it's from Anomic Anomic one ninety nine. Military spending equals boomer welfare. Any comments? True. I'll concede the point. There we are. <laughs> All right. So, guys, thank you so much for watching. Listen, if you want to help the show out, if you want to help Break the Rules grow, become a patron. Patreon.com slash Break the Rules is where you go. And you are going to get these very beautiful magnets when you become a $20 tier patron. I mean, you guys can't see them, but trust me, these are very, very nice looking magnets here. And uh, when you become a... Um, uh, $5 patron, you are going to get access to MP3s of the episodes after they come out. You are going to get special privileges on the official BTR Discord, which I'm going to post in the chat as well over here. And you are also going to get opportunities to come on some of the live streams uh, when they happen and a lot of good stuff like that. And finally, when you become a $50 patron, you are going to get a custom wooden magnet. Now, this is a Styx Hexenhammer 666 dragon that my father created. It's not a magnet, it's a wooden sculpture. That is for the Styx fans. If you are a fan of Styx, 
my dad's going to be able to design a uh, similar one uh, to this. So let me know. Once again, patreon.com slash break the rules. That is where you go. Become a patron today. You are not going to regret it because what you are building right now is we are building the opportunity for people who have never spoken to each other to be able to do so, which is why I'm very honored to once again have both Keith Knight back, counterpoints. I wish it would have worked out with uh, Jeremy. Unfortunately, the uh, glitch there was uh, off the charts. There's nothing we can do. These things happen. I'm just very blessed to have thought of bringing Keith on today. So, Keith, thank you so much for coming in the last minute. I really appreciate it, brother. And I hope to have both of you guys back. Once again, subscribe, subscribe, and subscribe. And finally, where can we find you guys? So, uh, uh, yeah, you, Keith. I'm sorry. You can find me at libertarianinstitute.org. Excellent. And anything else you want to promote before we go? People can watch my uh, Odyssey channel, which is Don't Tread on Anyone. I got tons of uh, uh, tons of free material on there on uh, logical fallacies, philosophy, economics, history. Uh, I have some debates. I have interviews with experts and uh, propaganda analysis. Nice. And speaking of Odyssey, by the way, this is playing on Odyssey as well. I just posted the link in the chat right now. Uh, We are live on Odyssey. We are live in a lot of places. And lastly, counterpoints. Is there anything you would like to promote? Yeah, sure. Um, So my name is Connor. I do run a YouTube channel named Counterpoints. I'm a science fiction, political, and philosophy nerd, a Marine Corps and law enforcement veteran. If you're into Warhammer 40,000 in particular, that seems to be my most popular content. I break down uh, the media reactions and animations and all that kind of stuff. I'm a big 40K nerd. Um, if you're into violence, I broke down some movies, uh, Aliens, Fury, Full Metal Jacket, End of Watch, or just a few of those. And then if you're into debates or essays, um, I do have quite a few debates and essays that I think are pretty high quality. Um, I think even though we're, you know, we're, we're growing, we're about to break 25,000 on YouTube. Nice. Um, yeah, thanks. It's, uh, it's exciting times. Um, Basically, even though we're quote unquote smaller, I think we punch above our weight class. So if you're into any of that stuff, come on over. Excellent. And with that, we're going to go now. Once again, subscribe, add a like. The likes really help the algorithm out. Thank you very much. Good night, everybody. Mwah!